All right, boys and girls, episode 76 with Lyle McDonald's about to start. This is part two, and if you haven't listened to part one, I highly recommend you get into that because I honestly just cut it halfway through and kind of found a talking point where he finally stopped talking because if you listen to the first part, he likes to talk for a good 15 to 20 minutes to answer each question. So episode 74 is part one, and let's just get right into it. And hopefully you enjoy this one as Lyle has a lot to say and I'm excited. You guys should be excited. So let's just get right into it. I'm glad we're on the topic of stress because one of the Facebook questions kind of leads right into this. Uh, So Bridget from Facebook says, uh, I have lost 90 pounds. I have 35 to go. I lift, I do cardio, and eat according uh, according to my macros. My daughter, and then in brackets, nutrition person, uh, set for me. Tonight I bought a pair of size 12 jeans. Never in my adulthood have I worn a size 12. I went from joy to panic. I'm terrified of regaining the weight. The stats are not good uh, keeping the weight off. I want to be an anomaly. I want to be one of those who keep it off. Please advise, please. <laughs> Okay. Well, first, I, I actually, the, the, this brings up, this is going to be kind of a, a quick tangent, but I do want to address it. There's still this repeated statistic that only 5 to 10% of people su- succeed at weight loss, right? This has been floating around for decades. It's wrong. I, I just want to, I want to emphasize this so strongly because I think this, as much as anything else, is part of the problem. These numbers came from studies in like the 60s based on a very small group of women in diet studies that were hard cases, right? These were the women that had they done every diet study before and they'd failed. Now, I'm not saying that this was behavioral or that they were failures as people. For whatever reason, there, there are genetic issues going on. There are physiological reasons. But this statistic is representative of this small minority of women who – we're already hard cases. This is not represent right? People who succeed don't go into weight loss studies, right? <laughs> kind of by definition. And there have been a couple, there's a researcher back in the day, I, I seem to, I think I'm the only person who's ever seen this paper. And he, he looked and the reality is most people who lose weight don't use a commercial program, don't even use, don't use a diet book, they don't use Weight Watchers, they didn't do any of this. They're not represented in studies. And when you actually look at the numbers, and some of this depends on how you define weight loss success, but whatever, it's more like 30% and up. Now, I'm not saying everybody succeeds. I'm not saying I wish I would, trust me, I'd be a much richer man. If I said I had a guaranteed success program, I would have a lot more money than I do. And I'm not, I don't want to say that. But we also got the National Weight Control Registry, which is a group of over 3,000 people who have lost weight, ranging from you know 20 to 200 pounds, kept it off for anywhere from three to 60 years. And the number of different uh, programs they use, the number of approaches, some used commercial programs, some use just did it by themselves. Some people used a diet book, most used a high carb, low fat. Some people used a low carb high, that's increasing in number. Regardless, they all show a cluster, well, before I get into that, 
what I think has happened, right, we've got all these articles, all these news articles, right, because fine, study after study, we know the body adapts, metabolism slows, energy expenditure is decreased, hunger is up. This is a tendency, the body wants to regain weight. But what do the articles say? Research finds nobody loses weight and keeps it off. And it's bullshit. It's totally, it's, I, I get it, it's clickbait, but if I told somebody yeah, you know what, you should try this goal, but you're going to fail. They're going to fail because they're going into it expecting to fail. And this 5 to 10% statistic is not helping. Who in the hell thinks they're going to be, be that exception when you tell them 95% of people fail? Um, someone, I'm going to get this quote wrong. Actually, Bridget may have actually used it herself. Podcast I did, it's actually a woman uh, called, she's lost, she lost over half her body weight. She's kept it off. She does a pod, which gives her, I think, a perspective on weight loss maintenance that people who've never been overweight don't have. And she said, don't be a statistic, which basically I want to be the anomaly. And that is her way of expressing, uh, and again, I want to get, I told her I was going to steal that quote because I think it, it's such a succinct way of putting it. Statistical averages are great, but they don't tell you anything about the individual. And again, I'm not saying I can guarantee success, but when you look at this National Weight Control Registry, you see common patterns, among them regular exercise. If there is a single role for exercise, it is uh, weight loss maintenance because it helps to offset the metabolic rate reduction. It allows you to eat more food, which helps to offset the hunger. It does take quite a bit, but regular exercise is really one of the key factors. Eating regularly, uh, most of them tend to eat breakfast. That's a whole separate issue with the intermittent fasting thing, which we might get to depending on time. Um, probably the biggest behavior is regular uh, they track their body weight, right? And, and there's a lot of debate and whining and, and grinding and gnashing of teeth over the scale and its usefulness. The scale is a tool. Used improperly, the scale is a poor tool. Used properly, the scale is a good tool. Perhaps the single most common behavior among successful weight maintainers is that they regularly track. Because what do most people do? They lose a bunch of weight. They start to slip on their diet or exercise program. It's human nature. You Get a little more relaxed when you're not dieting. In a way, maintenance is almost harder. Suddenly, they've regained 30 pounds. Well, yeah, the problem is they could have caught that shit earlier, right? If they've been tracking every day and rolling and doing a seven-week rolling average, or it doesn't have to even be body weight, have a piece of clothing that tells you where you're at, right, that fits now. And if you're up five pounds, it's tight. Well, guess what? That tells you everything you need to know. If suddenly you're up four or five pounds, the sooner you correct this, the more likely you are to succeed. People wait too long, right? Another paper I read called, uh, it was like, how do we define weight loss maintenance? Right now, weight goes up and down and up and down. You can vary two or three pounds easily day to day to day. That's just noise. So I use a seven-day rolling average. Don't worry about individual days. It's when you're seeing a consistent upward weight, or body fat, or whatever. And he said, if you have up more than 3%, it's time to get it together, right? So let's say you've dieted to 200 pounds. I'm just picking that number out of a hat. If you're now 206, it's time to get your shit back together. Now, humans, unfortunately, have this tendency to focus on what they have not accomplished versus they what, all right? You'll see someone who's dieted perfectly for three weeks or three months, and they, they blow one meal, 
what do they do? Ah, I'm a failure. I've, I've screwed up everything. No, you haven't. For three months, you got it right. Or whatever the number is, I don't even care. That one meal doesn't mean anything. But that's where humans fixate. So the person that she, uh, I'm sorry, you said Bridget had lost how much? 90 pounds? 90, yeah. Right, so let's say she gains back five. Unfortunately, this human psychology, and this is not aimed at her, this is not meant to be a trust me, this is just me speaking very generally. In her mind, she's probably more likely to focus on the five she's gained than the 85 she lost, right? She knows what to do because she did it. She's already done it. She knows how she lost the 90 pounds. Well, if her weight starts to slip up, she knows how to get it before it becomes a problem. Because as soon as, if it gets to 10 or 15, you go, you know what? Fuck it. I've already, forget it. I'm done. And you give up. The sooner you catch this, the better. Because she knows what to do, right? If you want to get deep into it, you look into self-determination theory, which is a whole site. Basically, you build self-efficacy. You build success. You build, she's proven that she knows what to do. If she starts to slip, go back to what she knew how to do. On this note, and this is something I really need to write about because it's kind of a new – it's a new way of me conceptualizing it that I'm sure someone has done before. People forget, right, dieting – well, anything. Dieting is a learn. it should be a learning process, right? You name a diet, somebody's succeeded on it. A number of people have failed on it. Anybody who says there's one way of dieting is got something to sell you. There are generalities. We have to restrict calories. We have protein, blah, 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 blah. We know the details are what some people do great with intermittent fasting. Some people do better with rigid meal plans. Some people like if it fits your macros, some people find that that kicks them off their diet. You name it and it'll either work or not work for somebody. So kind of like with the naturopathy thing, right? If you try a strategy that someone says should work and it fails for you, well, you can either look at yourself as a failure and if you think of this is how I must diet, then you are the problem. But no, maybe this strategy isn't right for you. Well, that's a learning. Go try something else. Go make a different mistake this time, right? Even if you're on a diet and let's say you decide you're going to a dinner party, whatever it is, and fine, you went hungry and you had a couple pieces of cake or in my case, three pieces of cake, some fudge and cookies because I like that kind of food. Well, you can either look at yourself as, well, I failed and I'm weak-willed and I suck, or you can go, okay, maybe next time I shouldn't go hungry. Maybe I should go fill up on lean protein and some veggies, plan to have a piece of cake, or if you're that person that has a trigger food, some people, if they start, they can't stop. Well, if someone offers you cake, go, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't eat that. And actually, my choice of words here is very specific. Don't say I can't eat that because if you can't do something, well, you can do it. If you say I don't, that means you don't, right? The guy who goes, oh, I, I can't drink. Well, that means you can. If you say I don't drink, that means you don't. So that's learning. Over time, you will develop your own set of rules that work for you. And some of this I got deep into the like the alcohol and drug addiction literature, and they're very concerned about this, right? People start, they go on the wagon, they, they stop drinking, and then they do, they make that mistake. Ah, uh, my buddy's invited me to the bar. I, I think I'm okay. And they wake up three days later after they've blacked out. Well, what have they learned? Not to go to the bar. And you form what are called bright line boundaries, which is I don't do this, right? If you cannot go to a buffet without eating a million calories, don't even try. 
I don't go to buffets. That's for you. Might not be for me. Might not be for anybody else. Nobody else matters. You have to develop your own sort of rule set for what works for you in the long term. Even with the flexible dieting stuff, and this is the biggest change in my conceptualization. When I first wrote about it, I was a little bit overzealous. I like free meals, you know, having that non-diet meal. I like refeeds. I like full diet breaks. They don't work for everybody. If a free meal makes you, kicks you off your diet or causes you to kind of lose your psychological focus, they're not for you or they're not for you now. They might be for you down the road when your food habits are more ingrained. They're not for you now. And it's not because you're a failure. This strategy is not right for you. And that's the way you have to look at all of this. You know, the person who jumps into a diet, and they're like, I'm going to work out two hours, six days a week. That's great. What happens when the diet's over? Is this sustainable? If you try to set up a schedule that you can't meet, so you don't make that six workout, well, you may go, you know what? I suck. I couldn't keep to my schedule. I would rather someone have a realistic schedule that they can adhere to and succeed at than an unrealistic schedule that they fail at because success breeds success. And failure be, breeds failure. When you succeed at something, you build self-efficacy, you build confidence, you learn that you have the tools to do it, right? I'm sure when you train people, when I train people with beginners, I want them to, to be good at everything they do. Even if I have to give them the lightest weights in the world, I don't care. I want them, I don't want them to have a bad exercise experience like they've probably had before and go, I can't do this. I can't. I failed on my first day. Right? People criticize me. Oh. Lyle does use squats. Yeah, I do. I like squats. I love to squat or I love to squat before I got hurt. With a beginner client, I wouldn't give them squats because it's going to make them fail. It's going to make them feel self-conscious. They can't do it. This doesn't mean I won't use squats them down the road, but if I got to put them on the leg press so they can do 12 reps and come out and go, huh, I can do this. I feel better. I don't feel sore. I don't feel wrecked. That builds confidence and that builds self-efficacy. So I'm way off topic. So back to Bridget. So number one, the statistics she's probably heard are wrong. I really want to emphasize that. Not going to guarantee she's going to succeed, but regular tracking, making sure she doesn't, if she starts to slip, that she doesn't, you know, rather than worrying about what she hasn't accomplished, right? To lose 90 pounds is a staggering success. And I would get off topic on this. They've done studies on this. People's expectations of their weight loss are staggeringly out of uh, sync with what's usually realistic. Um, they did a study and they had women, I think they wanted to lose 30 kilos or something, 65 pounds, thereabouts. Most of the women only lost half of that, right? They lost 16 kilos. They lost over 30 pounds. That's a huge weight loss. Half the women were dissatisfied with that. Right. You see these things. God almighty, we've got these these women's magazines in our grocery stores. I'm sure they have them all over the world. Walk off 120 pounds in three months. Oh, Jesus Christ. You have got to be the expect or the or the biggest loser. I don't know if you have that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's all over the world. Right. People see this shit and they're like, they lost 27 pounds in a week. I only lost five fuck am I doing wrong? You're watching a shitty TV show where they exercise eight hours a day on starvation calories. It's not a week between weigh-ins and they manipulate water with diuretics to make, cause it's good television. It was actually, I saw a really interesting documentary. It was about a guy who'd won the show and he of course regained all the weight. And he said, you know, I've tried to diet again and I'll be losing two or three pounds a week. Most people would kill, like do the math. Three pounds a week is 150 pounds a year. 
But he said, you know what? I'm used to you losing 17 pounds in a week. Three pounds? I can't do it. It's just too, it's too dissatisfying. So anyway, my point being that 90 pounds is a staggering weight loss, even if it's not what she wants. And I'm not, the, the, the research on this is mixed in terms of whether uh, larger weight loss goals are, are better or worse. Like on the one hand, it could be worse if it causes the person to perceive themselves as, as a failure. It, on the average, it seems to keep people more motivated. But what Bridget has to realize is that, A, look at what she's already done. Avoiding slipping is to focus on that and knowing that she knows what to do if she starts to backslide a little bit. There's also evidence that as difficult as long-term weight loss can be, it gets easier over time. Now, this is not metabolic. That stuff, unfortunately, never goes away. There's always a little bit of a metabolic adaptation where the, the, the weight, post-weight loss person burns less calories for their body weight than they should. But studies also find that with long-term weight maintenance, it gets easier. And that's because the behaviors get ingrained. And that's the key. The longer she maintains her current eating, her current activity that got her to this point, the easier it'll become, the less likelihood she will have of backsliding. There's just also the reality as people get further from their starting weight and closer to their goal weight, it slows down. And even if she's not losing now, the reality is as you lose weight, your calories either have to keep going down or your activity has to keep increasing. And it sucks. It really does. But eventually your body comes back into balance and you maintain. And to lose more weight, you have to adjust that. And that's just, that's just the reality of it all. And it's a shitty reality, but it is the reality. You know, if it, if it were as simple as just eat 500 calories less and lose a pound every week, people would lose weight until they starve to death. And that clearly doesn't happen. Eventually, they just plateau. They, they see kind of a descending or a decreasing weight loss curve. So that, that's kind of the best advice is, for, you know, again, number one, focus on what she's accomplished. Number two, focus on the fact that she knows what to do if she starts to backslide. Number three, realize that frequently maintaining for a little bit makes it easier to lose going forward. Three, you know, that the diet break thing, which is actually recently shown to, to increase fat loss, taking breaks every so often, which I get to be smug because I wrote about that 13 years ago and finally made the study that kind of finally showed that there was a metabolic effect. Um, where was I? Regular tracking is key. Uh, and just realize that, you know, the next, the next batch of weight loss will be more difficult. And she has to decide for herself, you know, is it worth it to continue losing? And if she stabilizes this weight for the next several months, as frustrating as it may be, she'll be that much less likely to backslide. And that will make moving into the next block of active dieting that much easier. So that's probably kind of a, a uh, also keep protein high. Like that's, if there's two things women get from this book I'm working on, it's eat enough protein and lift weights. Everything else is negotiable as far as I'm concerned. Dietary protein controls hunger the best, controls blood sugar the best. They've also shown that if people start to regain weight uh, after a diet, if their protein intake is higher, they gain more muscle and less body fat. So ladies, eat enough protein. <laughs> Seriously, eat enough Please, God, please eat enough protein and lift weights and lift heavy weights. Don't like heavy being challenging, not necessarily like, you know, sets of five. But if the weights are not challenging you, they're not doing you any good. Uh, so the next question I want to get into is caffeine. And I promised I would 
give you a little story here for me. Um, so I absolutely love coffee and I'm one of those people where I could have like a quad shot Americano right before bed and just go right to sleep. Yeah. And I got to a point where I was like probably drinking 10 cups of coffee per day and like I don't get any kind of energy. I don't, I just like the taste. And then one of my clients who's like super into health, she was like, Oh, I bet you anything. If you go off it for a month, you're going to feel like complete shit. And I'm like, I'll take you up. I'll take you up on that offer. And I went off a month and I'm like, I don't feel any different. So I'm like curious about why doesn't caffeine do anything to me? Whereas like my wife drinks a sip and she's like shaking from it and she's never drank coffee ever since she had that experience so i'm kind of curious what you know about caffeine and its effects on people yeah i'll be honest that i haven't i mean clearly there are are individual differences like there is to anything else i can't honestly say i've ever looked into the mechanisms because that's just i don't know it's never interested me that much you know certainly with caffeine People that are sensitive to it initially, what are called caffeine-naive individuals, do frequently tend to get desensitized to it. You know, there's a thing in sports that are like, oh, go off for four days and you get a bigger impact. It's like, yeah, but for four days you want to murder somebody. Um, You know, I would just chalk it up to just all the things, you know, caffeine is working predominantly through blocking, I believe, adenosine production. Just one of those things, you know, I've, I've got an uncle, kind of like what you're describing with your wife, if he has even a piece of chocolate, which has tiny, tiny amounts of caffeine, any later than 6 p.m., he can't sleep. And I've known people that can have a giant-ass cup of coffee at bedtime and it not affect them at all. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's receptor sensitivity. I don't know if it's just different hormonal response. Um yeah, I really, I really don't have an answer for that. It's just kind of one of those, one of those things that that happens, um, you know. So yeah, not not a particularly useful answer, but just like anything else, I've known people, you know, who take ephedrine and a caffeine and they're vibrating. I had a roommate that would put to sleep, which I never did quite figure that one out. Um, it you know it hits me for a while and then tends to taper off. I found that as I've gotten older. I've become much more sensitive to the effects of caffeine. Like if I have caffeine after about 4 p.m., I used to be that guy that could just crash out, and now that'll keep me awake. So there's an age thing. Could be liver metabolism. I just, I truly don't know. No, I was going to bring up the ephedrine thing too because I tried that because I was like, okay, I'm on a mission to find something to give me energy. And I've like tried all different pre-workout supplements. I don't even take those anymore. And I'm like, okay, ephedrine, here we go nothing great i'm just one of those people <laughs> yeah just you know i i knew some another person years ago like and you know moving into recreational drugs which is a different issue and she's like pot would wake her up and cocaine would make her sleepy and i don't know if it's some kind of weird reverse neurochemistry or or what it is but it just it kind of is what it is um all right um the next thing i was going to get into is the ketogenic diet because one it's been popping up everywhere and they even have their own hashtag on instagram and everyone's posting their like keto meals but then um i'm a big fan of tim ferris and he did a podcast with uh dr dom degustino i think his name is yeah yeah i know the name and um one he's huge on the whole keto genesis and what he was kind of explaining is that he got into it because he figured out that when they put children on a keto diet 
it actually helped them um, if they were susceptible to seizures. And it yes. actually, they were able to like, control it a little bit better. But now it became a whole big thing in our industry. And then the more I listen to this podcast, it's like, you can eat like certain vegetables and they would take you out of ketosis. And the only re way to actually figure out if you're in ketosis is by a blood test to know mm -hmm. where your like millimolars are. And then some people are like, no, I can like test my urine. That's good enough. Like I just wanted your whole opinion about yeah. the whole topic. Well, you know, just so, so everybody knows, like my first book was about nothing but ketogenic diets. It's a 325 page tome with over 600 references. So I always enjoy trying to, I love it when people try to argue with me about ketogenic diets, not saying you are, because I will just tell them, dude, I literally wrote the book on this, like not figuratively. I literally, my book is in libraries, like it is in universities, like I wrote effectively a textbook on ketogenic diets. So, so yeah, the history of the diet is kind of interesting, is, you know, it's been one of the perennial fad diets going back to the early 20th century, a guy called the Banting diet. Um, it kind of it came back to, in terms of the epilepsy thing, they knew for years that starvation could control epilepsy, but nobody knew why. And it kind of didn't matter because you can't starve people forever. So the ketogenic diet, and, and let me define some terms. A ketogenic diet, predominantly defined by carbohydrate intake, anywhere, depending on who you talk to, I usually define it as anything less than 100 grams per day. Clinically, they usually say anything below 50 grams of digestible carbohydrates per day. Believe it or not, the fat intake has nothing to do with it. It's all It's got to do with carbs and what happens when carbohydrates are not available, the body starts mobilizing a lot of fatty acids for fuel. Those are broken, made into ketones in the liver, and ketones kind of act as an alternative fuel, especially for the brain. The brain can't use fatty acids for fuel, right? And you'll hear, oh, it only uses glucose. Well, yeah, if glucose is available. Ketones are a fat-derived brain fuel for, to, to get us through starvation. The ketogenic diet mimics starvation with food. That's kind of the best way I can present it. So way back in the day, they would they, they, they started looking at ketogenic diets for the treatment of, of pediatric epilepsy. For some reason, it doesn't seem to work as well in adults, and I can't tell you why because it's been way too long since I looked at it, but predominantly childhood epilepsy. And then all the medications came out, and they kind of got away from the diet. And there was a dude back in the 70s or 80s or something who had a, a kid whose, whose seizures were not responding to the drugs. So he looked into it and he found this ketogenic diet and he put his kid on it and it worked. So he kind of became a little bit of a crusader and he wrote a book, there's a book called The Ketogenic Diet for Epilepsy because I don't really cover it in my book. So that kind of re reignited research on it and they did a ton of research and nobody really ever knew what the mechanisms were, or at least when I looked. I'm sure that's changed now. It, they didn't know if it was related to ketone levels or there was some evidence that cholesterol levels like I don't I don't really know there seemed to be an issue like the, the epileptic ketogenic diet is different than the fat loss version it's actually deliberately lower in protein and higher in fat because protein raises blood sugar a little bit can raise insulin can prevent the development of deep ketosis so with the epileptic children they they lower protein and give them just an absolute metric shipload of fat like it's like a four to one ratio they also look at medium chain triglycerides which convert to ketones more effectively and in a large proportion of kids that seemed to work the problem was it's really hard to stick to like 
getting kids to stick to this in the long term is really a problem. So that's kind of the basis of that, right? I'd, I'd say really the repopularization of ketogenic diets for fat loss, Dr. Atkins' diet solution. This was in the 70s, and this was really this, – this, this book took, took the world by storm in the United States at least. And he was just – he was an overweight, depressed doctor, physician, and he found the ketogenic diet, lost a ton of weight on it, and kind of became a, a born-again purveyor of it. And now at the time, they did a bunch of studies. This was late 60s, early 70s. And trust me, they didn't know anything about anything. And they would put people on the same calorie level of either high carbs or low carbs. And the low-carb group would lose weight. And they decided there was a metabolic advantage that still persists to this day. Problem is that studies were about four days long. And we know the ketogenic diets cause water loss, right? They didn't know about body composition. That was 1967. People who go on low-carb diets love it. First week, first few days, you can lose anywhere from 1 to 15 pounds. Like, I'm a little dude. I can drop 7 pounds in two days when I drop carbs out of my diet. But it's all water. You just pee like a racehorse. Um, he, so he said it was this metabolic advantage. There is not one, or if there is, it's so insignificant as to be irrelevant. The most recent study by, uh, by uh, Hall, Kevin Hall, for about 10 days, maybe a 100 calorie increase in metabolic rate. So 1,000 calories total, whoopty fucking do. Regardless, what it mainly did is it made people eat less, right? A guy named Yudkin in the 70s pointed out, look, when your diet's 65% carbs, if you don't eat any carbs, you automatically eat less calories, right? Protein is more filling. Most people who are on a high-carb diet don't eat enough protein, women especially. You put them on a low-carb diet, they automatically eat more protein. So, of course, they're full longer and they eat less. They eat on average 16 to 1,800 calories. For an overweight person, that's half maintenance. That's whatever, 60% maintenance. That's really where the advantage comes. Now, a lot of people feel real good on ketogenic diets, especially – more so when they're overweight. Um, blood sugar tends to get really unstable in overweight individuals. They're insulin resistant. Carbs cause their blood sugar. That causes hunger. Blood sugar gets way more stable. Some people feel kind of euphoric. And there's a study that f- theorized that ketogen, that meditation increased ketone production, uh, ketone transport into the brain. And that's why, so ketones can be a little bit euphoric for people. Um, kind of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so they kind of got really popular in the 70s. They fell out of, out of favor in the 80s because we got into high-carb, low-fat. The zone was moderate in the 90s. And then in the bodybuilding subculture, ketogenic, cyclical ketogenic diets came back in the 90s. That's when I got into them and wrote my first book. And now we've gotten to the point that you've kind of got this division where ketogenic diets are kind of – you got the born-again keto zealots. you got the born-again non-keto zealots. Got the, if it fits your macros, zealots, they're all zealots as far as I'm concerned. There's no perfect approach for all people. For people that are carrying a lot of body fat who are insulin resistant, lower or low-carb diets tend to be really beneficial. And like I talk about this in the women's book, polycystic ovary syndrome, insulin resistance is almost universal. And lowering carbohydrates improves a lot of health parameters. And in some cases, going full-blown ketogenic does help. So it's one of those things, and it's funny, right? I wrote the book on ketogenic diets, and everybody hates me for it. Anti-ketogenic diet people, the general, the mainstream nutritionist people, don't like me because I didn't say the ketogenic diet will murder you which is an old idea that's not true, right? I didn't write negatively about it, so of course I'm the devil. Pro-ketogenic diet people don't like me because I don't think it's magic. 
right? So every because I just take a, I have a very modern approach to most things. High carb, low fat, it works really well for a lot of people. Moderate, moderate works well. It depends on the context. Someone who is overweight and insulin resistant and not doing a lot of activity, lowered or low carbs works fantastically. Someone who's extremely insulin sensitive doing a ton of exercise, they need higher carbs. Most people are probably in the middle. You know, Most people I would like to see having sufficient protein, 25, 30% fat for fullness and carbs end up at 40, 50%. I think that's for most people probably about the best range. Some people find ketogenic diets, uh, the adherence, it's weird. The adherence can be both worse and better depending. For a lot of people, and I used to be one of them, if they eat some carbs, they eat all the carbs, right? There is no moderation for them. And I can do it. I can sit and eat a bag of bagels in a sitting. Trust me on this. When I did cyclical ketogenic diets in the 90s, and cyclical ketogenic diets, you alternate four or five days of pure low carbs with one to two days of all the carbs. That worked for me psychologically, right? I can do zero carbs. I can do all the carbs. Doing some of the carbs didn't work for me real well. So from that standpoint, if you've got someone who's a quote-unquote carboholic or just finds that eating starches makes them eat more starches, by removing the diet breaker foods, frequently they adhere better. Now, the, the other side of that is frequently they start to crave the foods they can't eat. Um, Eric Helms told me about a study that I hadn't seen. He put two people, groups of people on the same diet, but one group could eat bread and the other couldn't. Guess what food the group that couldn't eat bread craved? Bread, because we tend to crave what we can't eat. So ketogenic diets can be really great in one way and can be really problematic in another. So I take the standpoint of it works great. If you're doing a lot of high-intensity training, you're going to run into problems because you eventually your glycogen is going to get low and you're, you're not going to be able to stay in training intensity. So it's kind of a matter of, of context. So far as some of the other degrees, you okay, so ketosis, I think it was Dr. Atkins who pushed what are called keto sticks. So these little urinary strips that they make for diabetics and you pee on them and they color change. If they turn purple or dark purple, that tells you ketones in your urine. Urinary ketones are not accurate or they're not as accurate because you can be in ketosis, which is defined as a blood concentration and not have enough excess ketones to pee out. This is especially true if you're active it's especially true if you're lean. Lean people don't have as much fat to mobilize. They don't develop as deep a ketosis. If you did a blood test, they might very well show high ketone concentrations or high enough, but they're not going to pee any out. And so keto sticks are marginally useful at best and completely misleading at worst. Um, you can also get false positive. N-acetylcysteine will make you throw a false positive for ketones. And I bring this up because what's happened is people have come up with a lot of strategies to deepen ketosis that actually hurt their fat loss results, right? So in the epileptic children, to get deep ketosis, they give them a shitload of dietary fat. Well, guess what? The more fat you're eating, the less fat you're losing. I don't care how much fat you're burning. It's a matter of the difference between what you're burning and what you're eating. So people will be like, oh, I'm going to do a fat fast. I'm going to eat 80% dietary fat so I can see urinary ketones. Urinary ketones don't matter. Fat loss matters if fat loss is your goal. Um, this whole thing with the keto salt is just ridiculous on every level because ketones are made – being in ketosis does not cause fat loss. Fat mobilization causes ketosis. So this whole thing, oh, keto salts will put you in ketosis in two hours? Who gives a shit? If you're putting ketones in your system via a supplement, 
your body doesn't have to mobilize fat to make them. Keto salts are not only not helping fat loss, they're inhibiting it, <laughs> which is just, they're making millions, but selling people bullshit. Um, you know, if you want to lose fat the fastest, you do my rapid fat loss diet, which is based around nothing but lean protein. Take out all the carbs, you will get into ketosis. Take out all the dietary fat, you will burn uh, as much dietary body fat as is humanly possible. The more dietary fat you eat, yeah, you may be in deeper ketosis, but if you're making it from dietary fat, that's body fat you're not losing. Ketones actually, high ketone concentrations also inhibit fatty acid release. They raise insulin indirectly. So like the higher ketone concentrations are, the less fat you mobilize. So again, raising ketone levels with these keto salts is hurting, not helping. It's really stupid. Yeah, so, I don't know if that's No, that, that did, because uh, the other thing I was going to bring up is like in that same interview, they started talking about uh, ketone um, supplements and which ones you should take and things like that. But it kind of just no. seems that people just jumped on the bandwagon or like, we should market a supplement for these people. Well, and, and they came, they, and, and it came out of a, a couple of pieces of research, right? And this, but they were in endurance athletes. And what this has to do with for years, right? So endurance athletes like site, long distance cyclists and runners have this issue of they tend to run out of muscle glycogen and muscle carbohydrate. So they've tried to figure out, can we get them to use more fat during the low intensity bits to spare glycogen? They want to fat adapt them. And they've been studying this since the nineties and they'll put them on, you know, long-term ketogenic diets. And yeah, they burn more fat, but they can't train worth a shit. Or they looked at putting them on five days of ketogenic of a low carb diet and then recarbed them up to see if they could get the best of both worlds. So somebody came up with a study that they gave them keto salts and they found that, aha, because, okay, so normally when carbohydrates are available, fats and ketones are not used for energy and vice versa, right? Like I said, ketones are, are to replace glucose as a fat derived fuel. The goal, so you can kind of, it's kind of one or the other. Their goal was, can we get these people, the endurance athletes' bodies to use more fat or ketones for fuel while also having normal carbohydrate stores? The first study showed that, yes, they use more fat for fuel. Well, fantastic. Didn't improve performance. And then the most recent study showed that it actually harmed performance, I believe. So, but the point was they weren't looking at fat loss. They weren't trying to establish ketosis for the sake of ketosis. They were trying to make, find a way to make performance endurance athletes, which are not the general public, to be able to use fat for fuel while still having sufficient carbohydrates. And that's just, and then this just got, everyone was like, aha, a new supplement, get into ketosis quickly. Well, yeah, but so... You know, it, it might be good, you know, there, there are clinical reasons, and I, I, I won't claim to be up on this research, I just haven't had the time or energy. There has been a lot of interest in ketogenic diets potentially being like neuroprotective, you know, again, it seems to control seizures through some fashion, I think that so, it does not, please, I just wanted to say this briefly, it does not cure cancer. It has been shown to potentially impact one specific type of brain cancer, an astrocyte glioma. It does not just know. This idea that it will prevent or cure cancer is just so much horseshit. Regardless, it has. it is showing some benefit for like neurological issues. I believe Alzheimer's, again, I, I can't say I've kept up with it. Possibly through... Couldn't begin to tell you. If it's working with seizures, it's probably stabilizing the cell membrane somehow. Um, randomly, it is interesting. Seizures and bipolar seem to have a link because a lot of seizure drugs 
turn out to work for bipolar disease. And there's a couple case studies where ketogenic diets actually treated bipolar. And people ask me why I'm not on a ketogenic diet. And the answer is I like carbs. So I would rather be on medication than a diet that I want to enjoy or won't follow. So there, there's certainly some clinical potential benefit to ketogenic diets. I do think that lowering carbs certainly has a lot of benefit for people with insulin resistance. And in some cases, you got to go full-blown ketogenic. Um, the zealotry is my problem with it. This idea that since it's good for a certain population of people, it's ideal for all possible people. But I have a problem that's not limited to ketogenic diets. It's limited to all zealotry, whether it's dietary or training, whether it's volume, high intensity training, this, that, or the other. The idea that context might matter. You know, I don't think ketogenic diets are optimal for certain kinds of athletes. Um, certainly they are. If, if you're going to be, you know, pissing around at low, nothing but low intensity, like, but there's not many athletes that do that, right? Ultra endurance runners, maybe race walkers, at least one study showed in cyclists that, okay, they fat adapted them. Great. They used more fat during the race, but they were unable to sprint because it had some enzyme difference. They now don't think that, that it's carbon. It's, it's not carbohydrate. Hang on. How did they put this? It's not carbohydrate sparing. It's carbohydrate impairing. Fat adaptation prevents the body from using carbs to fuel high intensity activity. This is not a good thing for sports because sports are not by and large done at piss ass intensities. Yeah. If you're ultra running at a, for a hundred miles, you know, 50 kilometers or whatever, um, those guys are, are running quote unquote at about four and a half miles an hour, maybe five. That's a really fast walk, right? They are shuffling along a marathoner who did this will bonk flat out. And the reality is every study on performance has either shown no benefit or, that a ketogenic diet hurts performance. If this worked, athletes would do it, right? Athletes are usually ahead of the game. If this worked, the Kenyan runners who dominate marathons, the Tour de France cyclists, they would be doing this, and the winners are not, period, because it doesn't it doesn't work. Now, there is some interest in maybe training low, training under lowered carbohydrate conditions, which is like fasted cardio or doing the occasional day of low carbs or whatever. This may benefit some of the adaptations to endurance performance, but this is very specific. There was even a study that showed that pure ketogenic diet versus like alterations, like you eat carbs to support high intensity training and you train low on the low intensity days, like the, 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 and I think it was even in, in, it was race walkers or ultra distance runners or something. The ketogenic diet hurt performance that hurt exercise efficiency because yes, fat burns, fat provides more calories per gram, but it also takes more oxygen. And for a given VO2 max, that means you produce less ATP uh, burning fat versus carbs. Carbs are just a cleaner fuel. Again, for the average person, it doesn't matter. If you're lifting weights a couple times a week and doing low intensity cardio, I don't care. You don't need 10 grams per kilo of carbs. You don't, you might need two and a half to three grams per kilo. You might need a gram to a gram and a half, right? I don't disagree that this high carb mania got out of control. The other, going to the other extreme by default, kind of, you don't counteract one extreme with another extreme unless you need it. So I do think a lot of the keto people are, um, have, have gone a little bit, but again, that's zealots are going to zeal it. You know, the if it fits your macros, people are just as bad. The intermittent fasting people are just positively aggravating. Because if you mention the word breakfast to them, 
Oh, I haven't eaten breakfast in years. Yeah, I don't give a shit. You know what? Here's the thing. Nobody cares. Right. I don't I don't care what you but they have this idea of this self-righteous moral indignation that, oh, yeah, I can't believe you eat breakfast. Yeah, fuck you. I like breakfast. I train in the mornings, you know, whatever. I, I don't care what they do. It's their own problem. But, yeah, there's just that kind of I, I which is why, again, nobody likes me because I don't like anything except myself enough to to be like there's just there. There are generalities that always track through, but there is just no single approach because if it were true, if there was a single best approach for everything, we'd have found it. And clearly too many people have seen success with too many different things. Too many people fail at too many different things. Um, even the keto guys, this is their this is their justification. The study does not show that ketogenic diets benefit an athlete. Oh, they weren't keto adapted. Well, what does that mean? Well, they hadn't fully adapted to using ketones for fuel. You know what their definition of how long it takes to adapt to ketones for fuel is? No. One, one week longer than the study lasted. <laughs> By definition, I had a guy do this to me. He was just like, four weeks isn't long enough. I'm like, how long do you need? Six weeks. Okay, here's a six-week study. Nope, still one long enough. And I'm done. Like, if you're going to move the goalposts, just say, just go say right away, no research will change my mind. Be intellectually honest about it. But any study that benefits, no matter how long, is a good study. Anybody, any study that shows negatives or no benefit, oh, they weren't keto adapted. Well, how long do they need? Well, I'll wait till the next study, and no matter how long it is, it's never quite long enough. And that's like that goes back to the whole: how long does it is it supposed to take? Right. Most of the adaptations to ketogenic diets are done in about three weeks. All right, fine. Look, I've read every study that was written since 1920 till about 1998. Please feel free to show me the date on how long it takes, and they can never do it. They just don't like studies that don't agree with them any more than I do, but whatever. It's like, just be honest that you're not going to, you've made up your mind until you see the data that supports you. So regardless, that's kind of my take on ketogenic diets. They're good. They're bad. It just depends. Nice. Uh, so the next thing I wanted to touch on is intermittent fasting because mm -hmm. like it kind of died down a little bit. Cause I remember when I first read it, it was an article that John Berardi wrote and yeah. I was like, Oh, that seems kind of interesting. I want to try it. So I said to myself, you know, I'm going to try it for a month, see what happens. And that one month has now turned into like five or six years since I've been doing it because it just oh. it just fit into my schedule better because now it's like, oh, when I wake up super early, I have to get ready for clients. I don't have to worry about getting breakfast in and getting a snack in while I'm still on the sure. training floor. But um, again, it's not an end all be all. But I was kind of just wondering your opinion about intermittent fasting because there's so many different protocols, too, that you sure. could choose from. Yeah, and you and you kind of hit on it. Like I remember when all this started, and it would have been the 2000s. There's something called the Warrior Diet that was based around like one meal a day and a lot of nonsense. So you know, intermittent fasting refers, in the most general sense, to taking more extended periods where you're not eating. And in some of the research, it could be you eat one meal a day. Sometimes it's alternate day fasting where they you kind of eat small amount one day or nothing and then eat and don't eat and don't eat. They've done any number of variations and a lot of it, and, they, and they've shown health benefits, make no mistake. It seems to cause a minor stress to the body, 
but it's through something called hormesis. It seems to generate positive adaptations. Now, we didn't really talk about that with stress, but short-term acute stress tends to promote the body getting stronger. It's chronic long-term stress that breaks stuff down, right? So I was really talking about the chronic stressors that occur because mental stress tends to be chronic. Like if you do a workout, it's a stress. You get recovery, you grow stronger. So, so intermittent fasting was kind of a positive stressor. The one meal a day thing clearly worked. I think a lot of it was because people just ate less, right? You can only eat so much in a meal without, it just is the reality. I think really where it became super popularized would have been Martin Birkin through the lean gains approach. And he, he you know, cause when you're dealing with uh, people that are training, you run into different issues in terms of blood sugar, fueling the training, getting optimal adaptations, excuse me, recovery and growth. Um, so he kind of developed a protocol that was like 14 to 16 hours of fasting. Basically, you ate your dinner meal and you skipped breakfast and maybe lunch. Um, and then you would have a meal and you would train and then you would have a couple more meals. And you had like an eight-hour eating window. Now, it, it was still calorie controlled. It's still – you still had to worry about macronutrients. The the idea here was to support the training when you need you – know, basically kind of like with the low-carb, high-carb thing, to eat when you needed, needed to eat to support training and not when you maybe didn't need to. And a lot of it had to do with – there were a number of reasons, right? If you work a normal job, nine to five – sorry, traditional job, not normal. <clears throat> you're usually busy during the day. You've got clients. I don't do anything in the mornings except tend to my dogs, but you're probably not hungry because you're busy, right? You tend to be hungry in the evening because you're home, you're bored, there's food, you're watching television. So, you know, on caffeine and just mental power, you can get through the day without eating once you get used to it. And it takes a little while. Um, and then you would eat and then you would train and then you would eat a couple more times and you go to sleep. Uh, this had a number of benefits, I think the biggest one initially before it kind of went off the rails was prior to that, you had all these people who were locked into the you must eat six meals every two and a half hour psychosis. That alone was a stress, right? Having to worry about eating every three hours. You, I would hear about people who worked a traditional job and they would have to eat at eight and they had to eat 11. Well, they were working. They would sneak away from their cubicle to the bathroom to eat a chicken breast, veggies, and rice in the toilet stall because, by God, they were maintaining that three-hour <laughs> meal schedule. They would not go to movies because the movie would run over when they were supposed to be eating. It what This is just that psychotic athlete bodybuilder mentality. It's obsessive compulsiveness. It's just insane. Intermittent fasting – for most, for a lot of people, it's just like, wait, I don't have to do this. Wait, my, I won't go into fat storing mode because I missed a meal, which that's another bit of a little bit of bullshit. Um, you, you, a human can not eat for four days and their metabolism will go up, not down. Rats and mice adapt in a meal. So for a lot of people, it was just freedom. Dude, I don't, I don't have to eat every three hours. I don't have to eat within four, four minutes and seven seconds of waking up when my muscles fall off. And it gave people much – it just reduced that stress because they didn't have to do that anymore. Another potential benefit, and this is actually – I talk about this a lot in the women's book, right? Smaller women who are dieting are often on fairly low calories. And to tell a woman on 1,500 calories to eat six meals a day, well, that's 250 calories a meal. That is not a meal. That is about four bites of food. It's very unrealistic. Now, a larger man on 2,700 calories, pff, that's – 
trivial. You can eat six meals a day without a problem. For a lot of people, if they're busy during the day, right, one of the diet breaker times, dinner, late, if you save calories earlier in the day, even if you're not intermittent fasting, if you just have a small protein breakfast to just keep you from being hungry, protein drink or whatever, calories not eaten in the day can be shifted to the night. Having a big meal at dinner makes helps people to sleep, which often gets disrupted when you're dieting. For smaller women, being able, having three 500-ish calorie meals between 4 and 9 p.m. will keep them full in a way that having five 300-calorie meals spread across the day will not. So it had a lot of advantages there. Also from a social thing, right? If you want to go out on a Friday, your friends are like, bro, we're going to go out and do whatever. Fine, you just save up your calories with intermittent fasting and you can go do it and stay within your calorie map. Your cal- and it just it got people out of that mindset of I must eat six meals per day with these exacting with exactly 27.5 grams of protein, 42 grams of carbohydrates of wit, you know, yada, yada, yada. Then it sort of took on a life of its own. And it went from being a beneficial approach to the be-all, end-all, where it had enormous metabolic advantages. People thought calories didn't matter. It was better for training. You know. And again, if you're dieting, right, training is the key thing. The key, that's your, you've got to be able to train effectively to keep your muscle in, et cetera, et cetera. Clustering calories around training makes sense. Now, it's different for the inactive people, and most studies are done on the inactive people because they don't care. And it's different if you're not working out. You can eat a meal of two meals a day or whatever, and it doesn't make much of a difference. But if you're training, being able to support training, eating those calories and carbs when you need them and not when you don't need them made a very great deal of logical sense for a number of reasons. But then it just sort of took on this life of its own where it became this insane level of cult where it wasn't just like this is something you can do, but if you're not intermittent fasting, you're doing it wrong. There was also an issue for as many people as it worked for, and it worked for a staggering number of people. Make no mistake. I'm in no way against intermittent fasting. When it works, it works great. However, for a lot of people, it became another kind of binge purge. They would not eat all day, and then when they started eating, they would go nuts. That was my experience. And, and make no mistake, I've had my own sort of weird food issues over the years. And I got a little dietary restraint going on. I got some, st- you know, I got my own stuff that I've had to learn to work around. And that's just my learning experience. But for me, if I didn't eat all day, as soon as I decided to start eating, I would typically eat more than if I personally ate more smaller meals during the day. So for me, and realize I work at home, I don't have a busy morning schedule. It's different. My, if I were at work all day, it might be different. If I, whatever, it, it might work. But, and I've tried a lot of different variations. And for the most part, it's not a good approach for me. And I think this is one of those places where people can test it. And if it works, great. And if it's putting them into kind of a binge situation at night where they're like, ah, I get to break the fast. Time for the buffet. Huh, ate 4,000 calories because I was hungry. Then it may not be for them. I do think... And this is true about all cyclical dieting approaches, even the ones I've written that I really like. For for people coming from an eating disorder background that may have been based around, you know, a binge purge or, or sort of a bulimic type cycle, I think this stuff has the potential to cause a staggering number of problems because it puts people back in that mindset of starve all day, eat all night or starve today, eat all the food tomorrow. Um if someone has that background, I tend to suggest 
argue against it in the aggregate. I'm sure some people have found it to work for a number of reasons, but that's yeah, like anything else. When it works, it's great and it makes a lot of logical sense. I don't think it works well for people who train in the mornings because you can certainly put your eating window around your morning workout, but I think it's much harder to eat from eight to four and then not eat in the evening when you're at home and people you know are eating, then I think it works best if you train in the evenings, certainly. I know people that have done it. They'll train in the morning and not eat, which I don't think is optimal for a lot of reasons. Um, I remember I actually discussed it you know, with Martin. Like endurance athletes often will do two-day work, or a lot of athletes. And in premise, like if you're an endurance athlete, if your morning workout is just long, slow distance, yeah, do it fasted. Not because you'll burn more fat, but because that's that training low. This may induce more aerobic adaptations than if you're doing a high-intensity workout in the evening. Fuel that, right? Eat to fuel the workout. And even, even weight trainers, if you're whatever, if you're doing a light Olympic lifting workout, you don't need a lot of carbs. If you're going heavy in the evening, so that it can be adapted, but it doesn't always work. So again, sort of the same, same basic story. When it works, it's great. When it doesn't work, it's appalling and it's a matter of context. Awesome. Um, so I'm going to get one more question in cause we're like, yeah. we touched on a lot of stuff, but, I know. um, it's, uh, not going to be a training question. It's just like, I could tell you're a very intelligent person. So it'd be kind of interesting to see how you'd answer this is if you had an opportunity to do a Ted talk on a topic, not oh, related to fitness and health, what would it be? Oh my God. Um, I don't know. Cause my only other interest, like for, for damn near 30 years, I, as I've told people, like 90% of my, my time is spent worrying about thinking about, um, training and nutrition. The other 10% is divided fairly evenly between uh, monkeys, video games. And I've got a really uh, de depressingly scary knowledge of the history and nature of the porn industry. Cause it just was very interesting to me. So, uh, I don't know. I think probably, I don't know that it's necessarily unrelated, but evolutionary biology and psychology has always been really interesting to me. Something I got very deeply up my own ass about in my 20s. Um, and the thing is, I tie a lot of that into some of these things, like women's uh, women's biology versus men's biology is very based on evolutionary, you know, a lot of it developed, the gender differences developed out of, of differential evolutionary pressures. That's our history of video games. Maybe the history of pornographic video games. I could put the two of those together because I actually am altogether too familiar with that as well. I don't know. Yeah, one of those. But uh, the evolution thing is interesting because, like, my wife is uh, finishing up her psych degree, and that's one of her classes is um, evolution. And she mentioned something about how maybe one day, like, all of our synthetic drugs that we're taking for antibiotics and things like that, we could actually adapt and through evolution it won't work anymore so do you know anything about that oh sure i mean this this has been the issue with you know like viruses and bacteria and things that you know the the, the basic premise is that 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 adaptation to stress will eventually cause things. this is why we're getting you know antibiotic resistant viruses and things of that nature is some proportion of them will adapt and grow or you know why cockroaches have basically adapted so that the poisons and stuff don't work 
things that are working on a super quick basis, right? Bacteria have an enormous turnover. It's like, you know, humans evolve on a generational basis. Bacteria evolves on like an hourly basis because the, the reproduction rates are so high. That gives them this ability to adapt and adjust and change super rapidly. So yeah, she's absolutely not wrong. This is why they have to keep coming up with, you know, stronger antibiotics and stronger drugs because we got into this thing that, oh, I have a cold, take antibiotics. We just We've we've genetically engineered strains that are uh, resistant to anything we can throw at them. Now, I think a uh, so yeah, I think she's certainly right in that regards. I think an interesting counter thought: what if we could harness this in some sort of beneficial way? And and I actually bizarrely I got this idea from a science fiction book called. Uh, uh, the Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson, and he, he sort of is describing uh, a, an issue where there's we're in the future where there's these little robotic mites, these little tiny nanotechnological nanotechnological robots, some of which are very engineered and look very engineered, and some of which are very evolved because you just let them fight it out and see how they adapt. And you can then there are differences because the ones that adapt invariably. I don't know, they work out solutions that frequently the, the human brain can't come up with. Again, if you look at a lot of aspects of human biology, uh, it has figured out ways of doing things that are far more efficient than anything our engineers or scientists have come up. One example that comes to mind is synovial fluid, right? The fluid that's within the joints. It is slipperier and it is a better lubricant than any any synthetic lubricant, well, this is when I was in college in the 90s, at the time it was better than any synthetic lubricant that had been created. This is because over however many tens of thousands or millions or 4,000, if you want to believe in the box, whatever, however, whatever time frame, it evolved based on evolutionary pressures to be the best thing that it could be, right? If you look at, you know, it, it the way birds fly, you know, I'm the first engineer who made a plane wing. He wouldn't have thought of that if he hadn't watched a bird. Like the, all these animals and certain species have come up with these evolutionary adaptations to optimize things. Took an advanced X phys class and for example, frogs, right? What are frogs good at? Jumping one time. They have a nervous system that fires in a certain way. They pre-stretch their muscles in a specific way. They have a certain fiber type that fires in, that optimizes them for that one thing. A clam, right? Clams will catch and hold, right? Clams have their catch muscles are very fast and rapid fast twitch muscles, but we know that fast twitch muscles uh, fatigue very quickly. So they have another set of slow twitch muscles. So they catch super quickly, very inefficiently, but they hold super efficiently. Uh, hummingbirds have this weird mixture of requirements where they have to have super fast wing flaps but great endurance, right? And these are usually, a distance runner and a sprinter do not have the same physiology. What they have developed is a fast twitch muscle with a double-folded mitochondria, right? The mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, makes energy. Since they couldn't put more mitochondria in there, they adapted their own mitochondria so it makes twice as much energy per unit space. And I can't wait. I can't wait for genetic engineering. I can't wait till some maniac figures out how to put hummingbird mitochondria into a distance runner or to put frog genetics into a high jumper because these are animals that have adapted in a way that optimizes them for their environment. Um, humans, by and large, if we adapted anything, it was our brain. 
this is where we, we are superior to basically all creatures. Some of us are anyway, the people that actually, you know, as I like to say, humans have a big brain and sometimes we even use them. But this was what gave, like, people are like, oh, humans evolved as sprinters. Bullshit. A house cat can out sprint Usain Bolt. Humans are shitty sprinters compared to, compared to animals. Humans, a goldfish can outswim uh, Ian Thorpe or Michael Phelps. Uh, the, we're we're kind of good at endurance. Humans, because of the way we sweat and thermoregulate, we were able to like run down prey animals because we could just run them down in the heat. But by and large, we, we adapted a big brain. We're kind of mediocre at everything except being smarter than everyone else. That's why we get to destroy the planet and they don't, because we have been able to adapt our environment to us rather than having to adapt us to the environment, which is just all a very long way of, of getting back to this idea of it won't surprise me if down the road we reverse this, right? Rather than letting the bacteria and the diseases adapt to our uh, medications, someone will find a way to create a system that adapts, that lets the medications evolve themselves, if that makes any sort of sense. Like, it's right now the way we do drugs is they figure out a structure, they make it, and then they test it, and they make a zillion versions of it, and they kind of see what the best structure is and has the best effects. If they can reverse engineer how this system works, make it so that, ah, this medication interacts with a disease and can somehow adapt itself in reverse to the disease, this, I wonder if this won't get us to the point where we can make super targeted medications that are evolved, that we are evolving in a lab, but in reverse, if that makes sense, which doesn't really answer your question. But yes, I do think she's right that who knows with this micro, with all the microbiome stuff going on and probiotics, it's, you know, we know that it's happening in bacteria. We are evolving things that we can't necessarily deal with um and we're running into problems you know like i i think i've heard they've got you know one of the first hiv vaccines and that will work for a while and then the reality is that the hiv molecule will adapt and it will basically evolve into something new that that vaccine probably won't work on anymore and will eventually create you know super hiv or, or whatever whatever disease it is so um so yeah Awesome. So let's, uh, it's a good part to end because now my dog's just staring at me because I think she wants to go outside. Yeah. But um, where can people find you online? When's your book coming out and any other kind of projects you might be having on the way? Just go plug away. Yeah. So uh, my website, bodyrecomposition.com, which I occasionally even update these days, I've got over 500 articles. It's been around for probably near 20 years. That's where you'll find most of my content in my books, and they range from, you know, the ketogenic diet and the protein book are very technical. I've got, you know, diet books ranging from for high-level athletes. I just I wrote a little injury book, uh, nutrition for injury recovery, because I broke my leg in February and got very involved in trying to uh, to optimize that. I do have a support forum at forums.lylemcdonald.com. Honestly, it's dead. I think forums are done in the age of Facebook. I'm probably most active on Facebook, and I have a personal feed that I'm always maxed out on friends. I have a Facebook group, which is called Body Recomposition, which I'm not only super active in, but there are a number of experts in other areas. Like, I, I tend to be, like, I, I do have my areas that I like to think about and I'm talking about. I got a lot of areas I'm a generalist in, but when something's out of my wheelhouse, I've got 
two really good physiotherapists. I've got an orthopedic surgeon, I believe. I've got, there's an OBGYN who can answer all the birth control. Like I've got, I just tend to attract people that are experts in their respective fields. So any question I can't, we've also got, you know, some great powerlifting coaches some competitive bodybuilders, like pretty much most questions can get, get an expert answer. And I mean, I learn from these people, make no mistake. Uh, when, uh, if I, it's out of my wheelhouse and they talk, I listen. So my Facebook group is probably the best place to find me. I do have a professional page that I don't really, it's just another place for me to ignore people. Um, the woman's book, you know, I'm on chapter 13 of 30 with the editing process. I would like to have it out before Christmas because women are going to start their contest diets. We'll see. You know, I, 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 I've learned not to give release dates because I never make them. Um, my first book, I told people two more weeks for about a year, but I believed it every time. Uh, this, you know, it's kind of like if I rush it, it won't be as good. I, I do think I can probably get the editing done and, and hopefully have it released by December and then I got to write volume two. So those are probably the best places, uh, certainly my, my website and my Facebook group. Awesome. So thank you so much for all your time. This is just thank you. Awesome. <laughs> all right. So that's going to wrap up episode 76 with Lyle McDonald. Hopefully you enjoyed that two-parter as Lyle honestly just can talk your ear off and I'm probably going to get him on the show again because I had probably another seven questions that I didn't even have time for to get into Um, and I'm just going to reach out to all my listeners out there to please, 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 please share this podcast, spread the knowledge, help me out and grow this thing and Hopefully you will listen and share this podcast for me. And until next week, you guys, we'll see you then.